0: Um, so if you were to ask me, you know, what I like doing more, being a lawyer or a pastor, of course I'll say being a pastor, you know, because you're my boss and you pay me. But not only that, but in reality, I really love being a pastor more than being a lawyer, right? I would do this For free, I almost said, but Joe's going to remember what I said, and he's going to hold me to it. So, right, I love doing this. I absolutely love doing this. I really do, right? I love preaching. I love preparing for sermons. It's my hobby. I love counseling you. I love buying you meals. I love you buying me meals. I love every part of this ministry. I really do. But being a lawyer is easier than being a pastor. I work longer hours as a lawyer than a pastor, but being a pastor, being a lawyer is much easier than being a pastor, because at least when you're a lawyer, you can see you can see you're in a certain sense you can be in control of your work product. You can kind of make things happen. Obviously. God has to allow things to happen. Even in my cases, in order for my cases to be successful, I know God has to be involved. I truly know that. But at least there's an outcome. There's an immediate outcome to my work as a lawyer. Not so being a pastor. Because if you think about if you actually think, if I actually think about what I'm called to do, it is a crazy impossible thing what I'm called to do. I'm called to be used by God to regenerate you, to make you born again. Crazy. Christianity, at its core fundamental belief, is a concept called regeneration. That's my favorite word. If I ever would get a tattoo, I would get regeneration up my sleeves right here. Not the name of my kids or my wife. Regeneration. I love that word regeneration. The the, the definition of regeneration is basically to make new. To be, to be, to means to be reborn or born again. That's what it means. I don't like the word born again because it carries of too much cultural nonsense. I like the word regeneration to describe a Christian. Regeneration means... Christians are people who are made brand new. I'm called by God to be used by God to regenerate you. How in the world am I supposed to do that? Jewish rabbis are called to teach the Torah, right? Islamic, Islam imads are called to, you know, give lessons in the Quran. I am called by the grace of God to be used by God to regenerate you. Who can possibly do that? That's what Christianity is, to be born again. It isn't about religious teachings. It isn't about making you, giving you lessons so that you will live a better life. That's not what Christianity is fundamentally. It is about a fundamental shift in your consciousness, a fundamental shift in the way you think, where you feel, what you live for. It's a fundamental core shift of who you are as a person regeneration you can only be regenerated I can only be regenerated when my mind and my and my consciousness and my soul crafts the reality of reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ what is the gospel of Jesus Christ the gospel of Jesus Christ is best summarized by Jesus in the parable of the lost son. Remember the parable of the lost son? You remember the parable of the lost son? You guys all remember the parable of the lost son? If you're if you were raised in a Christian church when you're younger, you've done plays on the parable of the lost son. Remember that? Okay. Crash course reminder. Parable of the lost son. There's a rich man who had two sons, right? And it is customary for the rich man after he dies to divide his land inheritance to give a portion to the oldest son and a portion to the youngest son. The youngest son wanted the inheritance now before his father's death. He says, Dad, I'm my old man. I'm 18 now, right? I got hair on my chest, a little bit of peach fuzz on my, on my chin. Therefore, therefore, I'm a man now. I want my money now so I can make a, make a name for myself. You don't know, right? right. So, and so, the, so the father says, he sells ha- sell part of his land and property and gives the second son his inheritance. You know the story. The second son goes to New York City, right? He goes to New York City, Broadway, Times Square, the, meat mar- the, the you know, Hell's Kitchen, the meat district. He goes to New York City. He doesn't go to Greenwich Village because they're, they're too artsy. He goes to Midtown. And he starts a business and starts living a life of pleasure. He does whatever he wants to do with his father's money. And what happens? The kid squanders it. He invests in, he invests in, you know, crypto. He invests in crypto, right? He invests in, you know, some strange stocks. He poured his money on. Fashion designer clothes, and he pours his money on loose living. He squanders it all. He's so poor that he goes to an upstate New York farm where they raise pigs, and he becomes a pig. He He becomes a person who feeds the pigs. He's so hungry that he starts to eat the feed that the pigs are supposed to eat. While he's eating the pig feed, he realizes then and there what he has done. When he lost everything, then and there he realizes, I should have never left my father. My father's servants are better treated than I am being treated now. I'm going to go back to my father. I'm going to ask him to take me in, not as a son, but as a servant. So he goes back to his father's home. The father is in the porch, always in the porch, waiting for his second son to return. The father looks at his son returning. The father runs after his second son and hugs him. And the second son says, Father, I've sinned. I am so ashamed. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But I know now that you are always my home. That I belong to you. Father, please take me in. The father takes off his robe, covers his son with the best robe, slaughters the best cow, and they have a huge celebration because the lost son has returned. Jesus says that's the gospel. The lost son is us, God the Father is the father. Like the lost son, we do. We, we went independently and tried to live our own lives the way we wanted to. But we realize we make a mess of things. And we desire to go back to the Father, and the Father does not condemn us, but the Father welcomes us. A person who understands that that is how God the Father loves us, is a person who understands, who becomes in all of who God is, and a person who can start truly loving other people. When you understand the forgiveness of God the Father, when you truly understand that God the Father has shown you mercy, it is then that your heart is transformed, where you will be in all of God, and you can start truly loving someone else. I don't know basketball. I don't like basketball. But I like basketball players. And one of the basketball players that I like is this guy named Jonathan Isaacs, right? I think I t- t- preached about him a few months ago. I saw another interview with him. And he said, I was from a very troubled past, he says. I had a very troubled past, a violent past. I was good at basketball. They praised me for being, for, for, for being really good at basketball. But then I had anxiety because I thought if I had a bad game, that people would leave me. So I had this huge trouble past. I had this anxiety. But I found the love of Christ. And when I found the love of Christ, I realized this. It is when I start to love Christ, people's opinion of me start, didn't matter anymore. And he says, and I now started loving people that I could not love before. Jonathan Isaac's testimony is an example of the truth of the parable of the lost son. When you know the gospel, when you know the love of God the Father in his mercy, when you know God's love and mercy for you, that will make you born again that's the only thing that can make you born again. And the saddest tragedy of the church, church history is this. I'm reading a book on church history. It's, a, it's like a 1,200-page book. It's a long book. And it covers the Western history of Western church through from A.D. 33 until modern times. And you can see Church, in its early phases, focused on the regenerative power of the gospel. But the more you see, when the church becomes nationalized, when the church became a a dominant force in Western civilization, people start to make Christianity into these strange religious practices and not about the gospel. Similar to the Korean church. Korean church, I, I had dinner with you know, Sean and Sean's mother, and we talked about the good old days in 1970s Virginia. In the 1970s Virginia, there wasn't any Koreans here, right? There was like me and some, like, some other dudes, right? That was it. But then the Korean community exploded, especially churches exploded in Northern Virginia, in, you know, in places like here, places like Atlanta it exploded. When the Korean population exploded, the church attendance exploded too. Why did the church attendance explode? It's not because people were being converted into Christianity. Church attendance in the early, in the 1970s, 80s in America, church attendance, Korean churches attendance exploded because when people emigrated from Korea, they didn't have anyone. They didn't know anyone. And the only thing that there was here was churches. So unbelievers started coming to church for the sake of community, right? And so churches start to embrace them. And when they start to embrace them, they didn't talk about the gospel. They talked about like, a strange thing because it's a mixture of like prosperity gospel, mysticism, like, and then Pentecostalism. It's like a mixture of the strange doctrine. Korean churches in the 1980s and 90s in America, they didn't preach the gospel anymore. It's a huge mixture of this really strange teaching. Churches forgot that the essence of Christianity is regeneration. All of us who were raised in those churches in the 80s and 90s inherited that kind of false idea of Christianity. Were you really taught when you were younger that Christianity was about regeneration? About God giving you a drastic conversion of consciousness and priorities and heart? No, we were taught, we we just have religious experiences. If we lived a good life, if we we went to short-term missions, if we did certain things, that will make us Christians. How many of you were actually taught? the fact that you really need to be regenerated in order to belong to God. Christianity is about regeneration. This is taking longer than I thought that it would. What we see in Genesis 42 is the regeneration, is a beginning of the regeneration of Joseph's brother. Remember Joseph's brothers? They weren't nice people, man. They weren't. Right? And I think Genesis 34, when, his, when, one, of the, when the, one of their sisters was raped by one of the tribes, what these dudes did was they went out and they slaughtered all the men of that tribe. These were violent men. Even before what they did to Joseph, these guys were violent. Right? Right? These guys weren't bookish nerds who are into Star Wars. No offense, Star Wars bookish nerd people. I'm one of you. I'm one of you. These guys were men of action. These guys were January 6th, you know, face-painting, rifle-carrying dudes. And when they didn't like something, they had no problem being violent against it. So when their little brother was annoying, when the little brother thought they were, he was all that, and when their father started to show favoritism towards the little brother, they just wanted to, because they're violent men by nature, they wanted, they wanted to kill the little brother. And guess what? They did their best to do so, right? When Joseph was 17, he visited them on the field. Ten of his brothers said, let's kill him. They go, okay. And so they beat him up, and they threw him in an empty well, hoping that he will suffocate and starve to death. But then out in the distance, they saw people like slave traders. So they decided rather than killing him to sell him to slavery. So they picked up his broken, beaten body and sold him to slavery. That's who these people were. Godless, violent men. But Genesis 42 is, is beginning to show their conversion, their regeneration. How does God regenerate them? He regenerates them by testing them. Let's go see Let's go see how it works. So we're here, verse 1. There was famine. We've talked about it in the last couple of weeks, right? There was famine in Egypt, right? God chose Joseph to deal with the severe famine that fell on the land of Egypt. But it wasn't just Egypt that suffered from the seven-year famine. Canaan, which was where Jacob lived, the land of God, they also suffered from famine. There's nothing to eat, right? There's nothing to eat. Maybe you and I can empathize because they say right now there's a shortage of gas right now. Especially short of diesel gas right now. Airplanes and ships are run by diesel gas. And they say, look, if diesel gas, are, they're really, they're in a critical low. If diesel gas starts to run out, guess what? Supply chain's gonna be worse. You can't get your food. Like, we're kinda in the middle of a famine right now. Jacob was experiencing severe famine. There's nothing to eat, yo. And his 10. Big middle-aged sons were doing nothing in the land of in, in, when, when there was famine. So Joseph looked at his useless sons and said, "What are you guys doing? Why are you just look, just looking at each other? Why are you, why are you looking at each other? Which basically means, why, not, why are you not doing anything?" You know, I have fathers, maybe your father's parents felt the same too. When you go home, when the summer vacation, when you see your kids doing nothing, not my son, yay giant, working at giant, but sometimes when you see your grown children do nothing and just watch TV, and at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, in bed, during their YouTube, you become really mad. Do something, I want to say. Not my son. My son works at giant. I love my son, right? Yay giant, right? Joseph, Jacob saw his sons doing nothing. Jacob saying, it's a famine. People are dying. We're hungry. Do something, boys. He says, I heard they sell grain in Egypt. Go and buy grain. Go to Egypt and buy grain. Side note. Yes, the world is—I think—is about to be. I think the world is beginning to show shortages of many things, like baby formula. That was scary, right? So the world, in a sense, is 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 experiencing somewhat of a of a physical famine right now because of supply short shortage, inflation, and whatnot. But yes, there's a physical shortage we're suffering from but there is a more fundamental famine that this world is suffering from, and that is spiritual famine. This country is incredibly divided. There is unforgiveness. There is nastiness. There is mass shootings. There is this toxic culture. 40% Forty percent of millennials, Gen Zer says, they're all queer. It's crazy. And all of it is because it's a spiritual famine. They don't know who they are. They're so focused on blaming the external forces that they don't realize all their insanity is based because they are spiritually starving. There's no purpose. There's no meaning. There's no love in their hearts. And that is why they act out in a crazy way. Yes, there's a supply chain shortage. Yes, gas costs six bucks a gallon. Yes, there's shortages everywhere. But most importantly, there's a spiritual famine. And you see it because of the insanity that is going on out there. if you're honest with yourself there's a spiritual famine in you there is complaining there is fighting amongst, amongst marriage, married folks there is the sense of being lost and, what, and you don't know who you are and there is this sense of malaise and depression that is, that is an exhaustion that is settling before you it is because You're spiritually impoverished. Look, Friday, work beat the living daylights out of me. I mean, I'm I'm really busy, but this week was crazy busy. Like, I was slapped by clients, figuratively, not literally. I was slapped figuratively by clients left and right. My caseworkers were going on vacation for some strange reason. Everyone's going on vacation last week. And I was just crazy busy. I was so tired. I had to drive to FedEx, the airport one, not my local one. And I was so tired. But because I'm a good pastor, I had to go to a small group. So by the way, if your excuse is you're not going to a small group because you're tired, living example, there's no excuse, by the way, right? And so I was late. Of course I was late, because I was driving FedEx. And I joined the online small group. And I prayed with them for like 40 minutes the stress that I felt all week, I feel it getting lifted. If I'm lying, I'm dying. If I'm lying, may the waft sting me, right? There is a spiritual rest and nourishment that you feel 40 minutes. And to the point where I told the small group, I don't know how people deliberately, constantly starve themselves spiritually. I don't know how people live in a constant state of spiritual malnourishment. If you're spiritually hungry and the sign of your spiritual starvation is conflicts, is unforgiveness, is depression, is is this sense of being lost, if that's you, God is asking you, Like Joseph is asking asking his sons, why are you just looking at yourselves? Why don't you come and be nourished? Guys, God is not far away from his people. I promise you he's not. He's a scripture away. He's a prayer away. He's a Sunday worship away. He's a small group away. He's a, he, he, he's a fellow Christian away from, from nourishment. Why in the world would you start, start purposely starve yourself? Back to the story. So these dudes. So, so Jacob had 12 sons he thought one was dead he said joseph was dead so he had 11 left so 10 of his sons goes to egypt go to egypt to buy food the last one benjamin little benny little beniana he doesn't send with his brothers why because he loves little benny why does he love little benny because little benny was the second child that was born from Rachel, the love of his life. Remember Rachel? Jacob had two wives, Leah and Rachel. Leah was one with not so pretty with a lazy eye. Rachel was a beautiful woman who was the love of Jacob's life. Interesting that only pretty women are the love of people's lives. Men are such pigs. Neither here neither he nor there, right? So n- Rachel was the love of Jacob's life. And Rachel had two sons. One is Joseph and one is Benjamin. The reason he loved Joseph so much, because he was a firstborn child from Rachel. But Rachel is dead. I'm sorry, Rachel is dead and he thought Benjamin is dead. I'm sorry, Joseph was dead. All he has left to remember Rachel by was little Benny. He's not sending Benny to Egypt. right? He's holding him. That's what verse 3 says. but you will see in the course of chapter 42 and 43 that God is going to test Jacob by putting Benjamin's life in jeopardy. Jacob wanted to hold Ben so tightly, but God placed Jacob in a situation where he had to give up the thing that he loved the most. I'm going to give you a hard truth right now. Not an offensive truth, but a hard truth. I know a lot of you think, define the love of God as God giving you what you want. But oftentimes, it's the opposite. It's true. If God loves you, he will test you by taking away the one thing that you know that you can't live without. We define God's love in terms of blessing. That's what whole Joel Osteen's ministry is based on. No, 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 the Bible is clear. If God truly loves you, he's going to take away the thing that you think you cannot live without. That seems very mean, doesn't it? Right? If God loves me, shouldn't he, if my daddy loves me, shouldn't he give me a Porsche? Right? Today I was driving driving to church. There was a Ferrari right in front of me, and I said, "Son, look at that! Look at that Ferrari!" And my son said, "That's nice." No emotion of a Ferrari. You know what I mean? But me, I wanted a Ferrari. I was, I was I was thinking in my head, "Can I do it? What would Joe say?" I think Joe would tell me I can. Right? But what would what would someone else think? What, talk about, I got lost in my thinking. If God loves you, shouldn't, I, shouldn't he give me what I want? No, 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 no. God, if God loves you, my experience and the, and the truth of the Bible is he takes it, takes it away. Why does he do that? Listen to me carefully. He does it because in order for you to truly live and be a source of blessing to the world and to the people around you, you need to orbit around God. in order for you to be this person that God has designed you to be, in order for you to understand the love of God and the reality of God, in order for you to be this amazing Christian for the church and for the world and for your family, you need to revolve around God. You need to orbit around God. The whole world is lost because it's orbiting around some strange notions of truth. The world is in a chaotic state because it's orbiting around lies and perceptions. When you orbit around God, who is the truth, you'll be a sane, effective individual. But for you to properly orbit, he takes away the thing that you are wrong things that you are orbiting around. the most painful periods of my life is when God took things away from me. Things that I used to define me. But I'm telling you, when he did, I start orbiting properly. And I start to see and understand more. And I got to love more. If he truly loves you, he will take away the thing that you are mistakenly orbiting around and put him into that place. That's pretty deep, yo-yo. So that's exactly what he's doing to Jacob. So his brothers go. So his sons go to Egypt to buy grain. What a coincidence who is the person who's distributing grain to be sold who do they have to the buy grain from to live what is little old joseph the guy that they kill wanted to kill and sold for slavery he's the big man in egypt who's distributing grains to be sold It's ironic that they need to buy grain to live from a guy they tried to kill. Isn't that ironic? The same guy that they beat into a pulp and threw him in an empty well and sold to slavery is now a guy who's ended up having this, who's going to save save their lives. And when they go before Joseph, because he's such a man of high rank, what do they do? They fell, they bow down and fall before him. Isn't that ironic? That the one that they mistreated is now the one that they're bowing to. Little spiritual insights. That is the reality of what's, that is the day of the reality to come. Right now, the world mocks Jesus Christ. The world thinks he's useless. The world thinks he's a joke. The world thinks he's a superstitious fairy tale. The world, will hate, the world hates him. The world mocks him. The world ignores him. But Romans chapter 14, verse 10, Paul says, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. There will be a time where all those people who ignored him, who made fun of him, who was against him, everyone will kneel before Jesus Christ. Just like the brothers kneeled before Joseph. If you are ignoring Christ right now in your life, be very careful. Because the person that you're ignoring you will one day appear before. And you will see how real he is. And you will see how glorious he is. And you will also realize you have ignored this glorious real person. Be careful when you're, if you're ignoring him. So the brothers fall before Joseph. Joseph immediately recognizes his brothers. But the brothers didn't recognize Joseph. Why? Number one, it's been 22 years since they last saw the guy. Joseph was 17 when they saw him. People change appearances. I think Caleb looks the same, because I'm his father, right? But I don't know whether people recognize you. People who known you 22 years ago will recognize you. For some of you, 22 years ago, you were a little babies, right? For some of you, 22 years ago, you were still middle aged <laughs> that's, that's a joke. That's a little old people's joke. You know, so you know who you are. You know what I mean? Someone's someone offended, right? So I'm gonna look here. Right? So it was like, look, I ran in, there was a I had a dinner with my college friends like a few years back, and they couldn't recognize me. Kind of hurt because that means they never really noticed me when I was in college. Right? Anyway, that that kind of hurt. Anyway, but the, but, the is, but the thing is, like, people change and they don't. People don't recognize you after twenty-two years. And not only that, the brothers, right? They didn't for the. They didn't think Joseph, their little brother, was going to be number two guy in Egypt. They had no idea. But Jacob recognized them. And Jacob I'm sorry, Joseph recognized him. And Joseph, what did Joseph do? What would you do? There are two reactions, right? Either you can say, oh, it's hammer time, right? Oh, I was waiting 22 years. My name is Indigo Bentoia. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Remember that, Sean Stark? You know what I mean? If you know that, you're you're a middle-aged guy. Oh, I've been waiting 22 years for this day. I'm... Oh, I can have your heads literally in a second. You can do that. Or you can be a nice guy and just hug the guy and say, Oh, I forgive you. I love you. I love you, man. You can hug it out. There's two options, right? You can either kill them or love them and forgive them. Joseph Joseph doesn't do either. In fact, he puts them into a test. Uh He tests them. How does Joseph test them? He says, you ten. you guys are spies. You come into the land to observe the nakedness of the land. Nakedness of the land is spying to look at the vulnerability of the land so that you know, other people, other countries can invade Egypt. Nakedness of the land is to show the vulnerability of the land so that, you know, Star Wars, Death Star, there was like that weak point. You remember in the Death Star, there's a weak point Right? and Rogue One, people came for that, mat- I'm, I'm nerding out. Anyway, there's a, there's a vulnerability in Egypt. And they said, and Joseph, said, and there were a lot of spies coming to Egypt just to see the vulnerability of the land so that they can attack Egypt. Joseph was telling his brothers, you're spies. spy. The brothers go, no, 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 no. We're honest men. Man, if Joseph heard that, I wouldn't be mad, right? Before the guy they killed, they say, "Oh, we're honest, we're good. we're good dudes. We're honest men." Joseph says, "No, you're spies." He says, "No, we're sons of this guy in Canaan. We're sons of this one guy we had. We're, 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 we're 12 brothers, he says, to prove their identity, he says. We're 12 brothers, right? Ten of us are here. One of our brothers is no more. When Joseph heard that, that would make me really mad too, right? Right? Because, you know, you try to kill me, right? So one of the brothers is no more, and the little brother is with our dad. We come here to buy food. That's all. Joseph said, no, you're Spies. If you say who you say you are, this is what you're going to do. I'm going to send you one, nine of you will be in prison here. I'm going to send one of you back so that you can bring your little brother back to me to verify you are who you say you are. In order to prove to me that you're not spies, bring the little brother that that is at home to testify that you are who you really say you are. Joseph tests his brothers. Why did Joseph test his brothers? Joseph tests his brothers. I think so that he can see whether they've changed or not. Last time they he saw them, they killed, wanted to kill him and sold him to slavery. Joseph wanted to see whether they've changed. That's the meaning behind the test. Guys, another hard lesson, right? Just like a roller coaster. We had a a smooth beginning, a rough end. Now we're going for the rough parts, a hard truth. Listen to me carefully. For the remainder of your days here, God will constantly test you. God is in the business of constantly testing people. God is not in the business of tempting people to do e- to, to, to evil. That's not what he's about. But he's in the business of testing people, especially those who, who claim to believe in him. He tests you and me so that you and I will see exactly who we are and exactly what we really believe in but god is love yes he's love but god is grace yes he is grace but because he is loving and gracious to you and to everyone he will test you so that you will see what you really are what you really who you really say to so that you will really know what who you really are. Because he knows who you are. We're the only ones who don't know who we are, right? All of us are living in this state of self-delusion, self-denial, right? Self-aggrandizement, self-delusions. We have to see who we are so that we will go to him. He uses everything to test you, to reveal to you who you really are. COVID was a great test that God used for a lot of churches to test the Christians what they what they really believe in. Before COVID, we had a certain habitual practice that we've done. Come to church once a week, do the Sunday thing, and leave. And stamp our, and in our mind, stamp ourselves as a Christian. COVID is challenging this. He's taking away your habits. He's taking away He's giving you a valid reason of why not coming to church. He's giving he's giving you the word is giving you a valid reason of why you shouldn't come to church anymore. I'm afraid a lot of people, COVID has revealed what they really did believe was not really him. You can give me all the, you can explain to me, and I understand your explanations. But at the core of who you are, not you as an individual here, but as a core of what people were, maybe they really weren't worshipers of the living God. How does God reveal whether you truly love other people or not? You know how he does that? He gives you troubled people in your life. Someone told me, Someone brother told me, I didn't know I had anger problems until I got married. Did his wife cause his anger problem? No, he was always angry. He just didn't have an audience for it. Commit to this church. And I guarantee you a couple of things when you commit to this church. Number one, I I I promise you, to the best of my ability, faithful preaching of God's word, and I promise you, I'll pray for you. The thing that I also promise you is, I promise you, you're gonna be disappointed with me and with everyone in this church. I guarantee that's gonna happen to you. It will happen to you. He will give you difficult people to test you whether you really claim to believe in love and forgiveness. All of us think that we're loving, all of us think that we're forgiving. But God's going to say, oh, yeah, how about this person? Specifically designed to push all your buttons in the wrong way. Specifically designed to not meet your expectation. There's going to be a person in this room who's specifically designed to be totally offensive to you. Are you loving, God asks you? He tests you. I'm going through a stressful time at work right now. I really am. I go, oh my gosh, I had to pray. And as I was praying for the work, God is asking me, God is, I can hear God asking me, are you really going to trust me with this? You say, you preach that I'm in charge of your career. Do you really believe it? Are you going to trust me with this incredibly difficult task? He tests you. But in the midst of his testing, God is also gracious to you. You can see that in Joseph. So, he, so Joseph, Joseph says, I'm going to confine nine of you here. One has to go back. And so he confines all, all ten in, in prison for three days. Three days later, Joseph comes to them and said, change of mind. Rather than sending one of you, I'm going to send nine of you, and I'm, and I'm going to only keep one of you. Nine of you should go back and bring your brother. Why did Joseph change his mind? Joseph changed his mind because he wanted to bring grain to his family in Canaan. Nine people can, can bring more grain to Canaan than one. John, makes sense, right? Joseph changed his mind so that he can, bring more, so that he can provide more grain to his brothers and to the family. Even in the midst of Joseph's testing, there was grace. When God tests you, he's not mean about it. He's not. When God is giving you a difficult person, when God is giving you a difficult task, he's not mean about it. He's he's going to be gracious to you. He's going to say, come to me when you're tested. Come to me and I will provide for you. I will give you understanding. I will give you my love. He's going to provide for you in your testing? Every time that I was tested, God was never silent with me. He never was. In fact, in my testing, he was louder and clearer to me. In my testing, the sermons made more sense. The prayers made more sense. The Bible made more sense. In my understanding, he was more visibly readily available to me. He's gracious in our testing. He's testing you not because he wants to hurt you. It is so that you will go to him so that you will know his forgiveness and love. If he's giving you a difficult person, an impossible person to love, and all of you had some of those, it is so that you will go to him so that he will give you a sense of love for that person. There is grace in the testing. Do you know this? And we know that the testing worked in the brothers. How do we know? Verse 21, when Joseph was testing them, this is what the brothers said to one another. They said, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. This is what this is the distress that came upon us. He's saying, "I am there." Saying, "I'm going." We are going through this thing because of what we did to our little brother. Our little brother begged for his life when we were killing, when we were beating him up, but we didn't listen to him. We went through with our violence. Reuben the older brother who tried to stop the brothers by the way says, "Look, I told you guys not to do this. But you did it and because you did it, this we're suffering this pain right now." I think this is the first time these guys confessed their sins to each other. It's an absolute miracle that these guys start to confess their sin. From our point of view, from our point of view, it makes sense for them to confess because they did a horrible thing. And in our minds, we think, if we did a horrible thing, people will naturally confess. That's not true, man. That's not true at all. You can do horrible things and not confess and not admit it. I've known people, Christians I know, Who have done horrible things to their families and never confess? It's the strangest thing. I know dudes who killed people and never confess. Because we're really good at self justification, self illusions, self protection, self love. It takes an absolute miracle for us to understand that we're guilty. God's grace was on the brothers. How do you know? Because they started to see who they were. How do you know God is beginning a regenerative work in you? He makes you see your sin. All of us were raised in Christian environment conceptually understand that I'm a sinner, but we don't really buy it. We really don't. We think sin is for the Wall Street people, right, the drug pushers, right, right, the Democrats, right? We think those are the sinners, right, right? But it's not out there, you know. It's in you. It's really in you. It's really in me. And when God starts opening your eyes up to really see your sins and confess that you really are a sinner before him, you will really begin to understand his forgiveness for you. The greatest thing that you can ask God is that God, open my eye to see my sins. Not only see my sins, but the fact that you forgave me despite my sins. That's the beginning of true revelation. That's the beginning of true regeneration. If you're stuck in a conceptual understanding of sin, stop in and ask God for a clearer view of who you are. so that you will know his love and forgiveness in a true way, so that you will be transformed into a person like Christ who died for his enemies. Is God testing you right now? I'm pretty sure. I think he is. With an impossible project, difficult people, your laziness. What is he revealing to you through your testing? Ask God to reveal what you want to see through the testing so that you will go to him. Let us pray.